What five-letter word actually becomes shorter when you add two letters to it? Short. How can you physically stand behind your father while he is standing behind you? Stand back to back. When the two of you stand back to back, you're physically standing behind each other. Now, why are we doing brain teasers? It's because in our countdown of the most quoted Psalms of the New Testament, we've now reached Psalm 110 this morning. This is the equal most quoted Psalm in the entire New Testament. But it also turns out to be a Psalm that contains one of the biggest brain teasers of the Old Testament. Here's the thing about brain teasers, though. Uh, Once you've seen the solution, they are suddenly so obvious, aren't they? Of course, short is the five-letter word that becomes shorter when you add to... That's so obvious when you've seen the solution. And that's going to happen today. Uh, Psalm 110, massive brain teaser to Old Testament Israel. Once you see the solution in the New Testament, it is so obvious uh, who this psalm is about. But that's, of course, one of the great privileges for you and I living this side of the cross. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's firstly appreciate why this psalm is such a brain teaser in the first place. And it's here that the content of the psalm within the book of Psalms provides us with some helpful clues. Because with this psalm, we have now jumped ahead to what is called Book 5 of the Psalms. Hopefully you remember from previous weeks that the Psalms are indeed collected... uh, um, Uh, divided into five collections, five books. Uh, Book one, in which three of the psalms that we've already looked at, Psalms 2, 8 and 22, uh, book one described David's struggles. They are psalms of difficulty and lament. Uh, In book two, what you discover is that David's psalms intensify. They become even more desperate. But after book two, something quite interesting happens. After two books all about David, after two books in which David wrote 56 of the 72 Psalms, so he's contributed 80% of the Psalms so far, suddenly in book three, David effectively disappears. He writes just one Psalm. It's one in which he pleads for mercy. And there's a fleeting, fleeting mention of him in the very last psalm of the third book, Psalm 89. But that's only to mention that Israel have rejected him. Now this disappearing act of David then picks up speed into book four, where God himself now appears as king. In book four, in the fourth collection, there's no mention whatsoever of God's special anointed king. In fact, whenever the word king is used, it is only ever used to refer to Yahweh, to God as king. And a couple of weeks back, you might remember, Alan looked at Psalm 95 with us, and that was an example of one of those sorts of psalms. And so by this point in the book of Psalms, it's actually a, we're actually feeling a little disappointed. Because Psalm 2 got us off to a great start few weeks back, hopefully you remember it, Psalm 2 painted this massive picture of God's anointed one, the chosen one, full of power and authority. God's king was 
on display in all his majesty in Psalm 2. But as the Psalms have developed, it's almost as if the reality has not matched up with what was promised. And so after two books of weakness and struggle, it's as if God's anointed king is then just sort of forgotten about, moved on from. By book four, it's almost as if the anointed human king of God's people is just sort of swept under the carpet as a bit of an embarrassing failure. But then in book five, something very unexpected happens. In book five, suddenly the anointed king of God's people is back. And he's back bigger than ever. Suddenly, uh, Psalms appear that start to predict a new future king, a massively improved king, an almost super king in the line of King David. And that in itself is quite a mystery. And it's into that context that the content of Psalm 110 literally explodes into the book with a description of a king over God's people like nobody we've heard of before. And it turns out to be a bit of a brain teaser. Verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this is the first of two announcements, two quotations from God himself within the psalm. And it's a pretty simple psalm. The way it works is that it revolves around these two quotations, these two announcements, because after each announcement, you then get a bit of an explanation from the psalmist himself about the implications of the announcement from God. So verse 1, it's God's first announcement. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And what we need to appreciate is that immediately this would have thrown an Old Testament Israelite into a massive brain teaser. Because who on earth is this mysterious new Lord? Because remember, Lord in capital letters there in verse 1, that stands for Yahweh, that's God. Lord in little letters, that stands for, that's a title for master, boss, leader. Which makes it confusing. Because did you notice Psalm 110 of David, a psalm, King David is writing this psalm. But he's the divinely appointed leader of God's people. But he is referring to someone else as his boss. The Lord says to my Lord. In other words, Yahweh says to my boss. But who the heck would David be calling, some, be calling boss? Surely he's the boss. Who is this new Lord that suddenly has appeared on the scene? Especially so because of what Yahweh declares about him. Verse 1 again, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. To sit at the right hand of someone, that is to be in a place of privilege, a place of honour, a place of authority. So we've got here a picture of unparalleled closeness to Yahweh. And that's expanded on in verses 2 and 3. Remember, that's how the psalm works. You get a quote from God, an announcement from God, then the explanation by the psalmist. Verse 2, here comes the explanation. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy majesty. From the womb of the dawn, you will see the dew of your youth. This Lord of, 
even David's, whoever he is, he will not only enjoy amazing proximity to Yahweh, he will also enjoy unequalled power over his enemies and unequal loyalty from his troops. His people, we're told, will be willing and eager to serve him. That's probably what that uh, weird last phrase means in verse 3, that, the, that bit about receiving the dew of your youth. Um, it's probably the idea that this ruler's troops will spring to his word, just like the dew springs uh, on the ground in the morning. And so, unlike poor old King David, whose psalms of struggle filled the first couple of books um, within the book of Psalms, unlike poor old King David, who often lamented about his hostile, powerful enemies and who often lamented about the fact that there was treachery even within his own troops, here David is looking forward to a Lord who will enjoy the full and eager support of his people. A Lord with unprecedented authority and closeness to God. A Lord whom King David himself will even bend the knee to. A Lord who sounds like the real deal in terms of what Psalm 2 has explained for, has described for us earlier in the book. And it begs the question, who on earth is this person going to be? Who on earth, can, can you think of anyone who could possibly fill this description? Now I'm sure some of you are out there thinking, some of you are out there at the moment, like the kid in the classroom who knows the answer. Oh, pick me, pick me, I know who this is about. Just hold on, we'll get to it. It's one of the beauties of living this side of uh, the cross. For the moment, let's keep appreciating just how hard this brain teaser would have been for an Old Testament Israelite. It's about to get harder with the next announcement. Because now we don't just get a mysterious new Lord, we get a mysterious new priest. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here's God's second quotation. Who is this Melchizedek who suddenly gets mentioned? Now, thinking caps on. Melchizedek was a priest from way back in the book of Genesis. Uh, way back before King David. Way back before Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. Way back before Moses and the Ten Commandments in the Exodus. Way back before uh, Joseph in his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, way back in the time of Abraham, Melchizedek is a priest who popped up in Genesis 14. He blesses Abraham and receives a gift, a gift from Abraham. But in Genesis 14, he's only there for three verses. The sort of guy that you really do blink and you miss him. And he's never heard of again. Till suddenly he pops up here in Psalm 110. That in itself is a bit of a surprise that this guy even rates a mention. But even more is the surprise that this future Lord, that even King David calls Lord, and who is sitting at the right hand of, of God, uh, he is now described as being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And suddenly you see for an Old Testament Israelite who's reading this, their entire worldview has just had a complete meltdown. Because at the time David was writing this, to be a priest meant that you had to be a Levitical priest. By God's own command, 
a priest had to be a descendant of Levi. But kings were descendants of Judah, which meant that the two were mutually exclusive. Priests came from Levi, kings come from David, never the two will meet. Here's now a king of unparalleled authority who is also a priest, and not just any priest, a priest in the line of Melchizedek. So what's that saying? What is that suggesting? Is this, hang on, is this suggesting that the Levitical priests have now been replaced by some sort of new priest, some sort of super king priest? But if Levitical priests have now been bypassed, is that suggesting that the whole Mosaic law and the sacrifices and the rituals, are they being bypassed? Is this psalm suggesting that the Old Testament law doesn't matter anymore because now there's some sort of new God-endorsed priestly sort of super king? This would be unprecedented. Uh, the last king in the, in the Old Testament who tried to also be a priest, he was a guy called King Saul. And if you don't know the story, let me tell you, it ended disastrously. God actually took the throne off Saul for trying to be a priest as well. But this king priest doesn't sound all that much of a disaster. Look at the explanation that follows in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore he will lift up his head. Now again, last verse, that's a little bit of a strange one, the one about drinking from a brook, lifting up your head. It's probably a reference to this priest king dipping his head to drink from the water of a stream so as to refresh himself before lifting up his head to continue chasing his enemies, uh, pursuing them unto their in total submission. That's the sort of picture that's developing in these verses. Uh, verse 6, crushing the rulers of the whole earth. But what I want you to appreciate is the size of the brain teaser that this psalm is now posing for an Old Testament Israelite. We got a king with unparalleled authority. We got a king with unequal uh, closeness to Yahweh. Heck, we got a king that even the great King David calls his Lord. And he's also a priest, and not just any priest, a new sort of priest, whose very existence throws into question the whole ongoing usefulness of the Old Testament. Who, who the heck is this person? A, a priest king who conquers the world and brings to an end the Old Covenant? Who is he? Funny how brain teasers are so obvious when you already know the answer. Because for us, this side of the cross... It's not hard to see who the person is. It's Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Come with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, there's actually quite a few places in the New Testament we could go to. This is, after all, the equal most quoted psalm in the New Testament. New Testament writers are very excited about able to solve this particular brain teaser. Acts chapter 2. 
We could go to Mark 12. That's where Jesus actually rubs the, the teachers of the law. He basically rubs their nose in the fact that they don't know the answer to this one. Or we could go to Hebrews 7. That's a very lengthy discussion about why this king priest gives us such wonderful assurance before God. I've put those references on the bulletin if you, on the outline if you'd like to chase them up at a later time for yourself. But this morning, for the sake of time, Acts 2 is perhaps the most straightforward place for us to see this psalm quoted and solved. Acts 2, we're going to pick it up at verse 32. Uh, the scene is Pentecost. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has poured out the Holy Spirit on the disciples. As a result of that, the disciples are now miraculously speaking in all different types of languages. It's not something you see every day, so it's drawn a crowd. And Peter now explains to the crowd why all this is happening. Verse 32, Acts 2. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The fact that they're speaking in other languages. For David didn't ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See what Peter has done there? Jesus has risen from the dead. They've seen him. Jesus is now risen and exalted at the right hand of God himself. And so, by consequence, the mystery person of Psalm 110, it's been solved. It's the risen Christ. And suddenly all those extraordinary things that we've just heard about in the psalm, a king with unparalleled authority and closeness to God, a king who's a priest, not just any priest, a new type of priest, conquers the world, puts an end to the entire old covenant. It's Jesus. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? You've had those times when you join a couple of dots in your head and you suddenly realise that you've just done something incredibly stupid. That's the crowd listening to Peter. The penny has just dropped with them. Hey, you know that, that priestly sort of super king that Psalm 110 is on about and that the teachers of the law, they couldn't even figure out who it was? You know that guy? Turns out that's the guy we just executed about a month ago. Peter replied, verse 38, Repent, be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now the word repent there means turn your life around. Start seriously following Jesus instead of ignoring him. Do a U-turn and start serving him as the king priest of Psalm 110. And baptism was a way of symbolically showing that, a common symbol of the time, to show that you had submitted to someone else's authority over you. And so when Peter calls on the Jews there to repent and be baptised, he's saying, look, if you, if you would just prepare to admit that you were wrong, 
Just stop rejecting Jesus and now submit to him as your Lord, as in fact the great King David was prepared to do by calling him Lord. It's not too late. You can still be forgiven. You can receive God's own spirit. And friends, I reckon that that lesson that Peter is spelling out there to the Jews in Jerusalem, it's still a lesson that's worth us hearing because I think it's a lesson that's very close to the original lesson of the psalm. For I don't know if you noticed it on the way through earlier, but in Psalm 10, there's this great emphasis on what will happen to you if you are an enemy of this great king priest. In Psalm 110, verse 1, verse 2, verse 5, verse 6, there is this continual mention in the psalm of how completely and utterly destroyed those people will be who oppose this priest king. And so a thousand years later, Peter explains to the Jews in Jerusalem, whatever you do, stop rejecting Jesus. Instead, submit to him. Which is sort of a repeat of the lesson we saw from Psalm 2, which makes sense. Here is a psalm, here is the anointed one who is now fulfilling all the promise that Psalm 2 described. So kiss the son, as Psalm 2 said. Seek refuge in him before it's too late. Enjoy the wonderful eternal security that God's anointed king can provide. Enjoy the safety that this priest king offers. And the lovely ending to Acts 2 is that that's exactly what about 3,000 people did. About 3,000 of them realised their mistake, realised they had not given Jesus the relevance and submission and obedience that he deserved, And so they just decided, hey, enough's enough. And they decided to live from that day on with Jesus as their Lord. As they joined King David in calling him their Lord. And they sought refuge in the priest king. Friends, have you done that? Not asking if you come to church. Have you submitted to this priest king? If you haven't, would you like to? Because you can be forgiven by God. You can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can. It's a matter of just doing what Peter urged the Jews in Jerusalem to do, admitting they were wrong about Jesus, turning their life around so as to now serve him instead of ignoring him, enjoying the forgiveness that this priest king can offer enjoying the safety and the refuge that this powerful priest king has at his disposal. Now, if that's something you'd like to do, come and and see me or Wayne over over lunch a little bit later. But friends, that might be a little scary to do, especially if you've been around church for a while and, you know, people just sort of presume that you've done it. But But if you haven't done it, you need to. Because if Psalm 110 tells us anything, you don't want to be one of his enemies. He will crush them on the day of his wrath. But of course many of us have done it. We've submitted to Jesus. And I wonder whether one of the lessons of Psalm 110 should therefore be to fill us with perhaps a sense of urgency. To let other people know the solution to this Old Testament brain teaser. 
I mean, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40 tells us that Peter warned and pleaded with people to save themselves. He warned and pleaded with people to save themselves. There's a level of urgency to that. There's a level of desperation to that description that maybe doesn't quite sound like us a lot of the time. Warning. Pleading. Friends, the mystery's been solved. Okay, The brain teaser's been cleared up. The priest king who has conquered the world and ushered in forgiveness of sins, it's Jesus. And friends, that is a solution we need to make sure everyone gets to hear about. 